Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. As we get started, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 10. We're going to be continuing our series on the way to the Father. Continuing to study the book of John from the perspective of asking the question, what can we discover about God the Father by looking at the life and teachings of his sent son, Jesus? And, and, and we're doing this by asking the question each week, sort of, who is God? Who is God? And it's a good thing that we ask that question because Jesus is actually clear in John that God the Father is actually who he came to reveal. So we're looking in the right spot, if you know what I mean. In John fourteen nine, he says to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So as we, as we ask the question, who is God? As we ask Jesus, what have you come to reveal about the Father? Uh, that's what we're spending our time doing in the book of John. Now, I want to be honest with you as you're, as you're turning to John 10. We're going to be looking at the first 21 verses. Uh, we will get through them. Don't worry. Uh, I, I want to admit for a second the blueprint for today uh, right off the top. Uh, Jesus is going to be using in this passage an extended metaphor. Welcome back to English class. Uh, An extended metaphor of sheep and a shepherd. And he's going to do this to draw a contrast between himself and the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And the way he speaks about it is almost like a parable. It's almost... Storytelling. It's almost picture painting, which is rare in the book of John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is using parables all the time. But in John, this is a different flavor uh, for how John records Jesus. And it, it has immense theological ramifications, what we're going to look about, what Jesus shares about today uh, in terms of sheep and a shepherd. But I think it's best and most simply understood if we just know the context of Jesus' ministry and what's happening right at this moment, what's been building to this moment. In other words, the, the truth and the, the powerful, rich theology of what Jesus is going to teach us is best gleaned by just understanding that this is Jesus' simple response to what has been happening. Yes, it is earth-shattering, but it's really just Jesus in the moment saying, you know what? This is how it is. It's a simple response. And that's encouraging to me because uh, I feel like it's, it's, it's an accessibility that Jesus brings to these truths. So the blueprint for today is to spend uh, some considerable time up front looking at the culture and the context of what's been happening, where Jesus is, what's been going on in these middle chapters of John as we get to John 10. And from there in the text, we're going to let Jesus' simple word, his simple extended metaphor teach us, and it's going to land quicker and more readily. That's what I'm hoping. And, and eventually, hopefully we hit this point where it's just Jesus teaching us and, not, and my words are falling away. Jesus is a considerable preacher upgrade from me, if you were wondering. You can write that down in your notes or whatever. I didn't put that on a slide. But uh, to, to, to put it simply, we're going we're gonna to dive into the context before we look at the text, if that makes sense. So we spoke about uh, a little bit last week as we were in John 8, as we were looking at the woman who was caught in adultery, this trap that the Pharisees set for Jesus to see what he would do. Would he be too light to the law? Would he, would he uh, alienate the people by saying, yes, stone her? Last week... We, we took a little look at the context of what's going on, the, the tension that's happening right now between Jesus, the people listening to him, the religious leaders, all going on in Jerusalem right now. Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts in Jerusalem 
for a few days now because he's there for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a week-long feast. It was a celebration of the harvest. There's a lot of teaching, a lot of celebration going on. And there's great division amongst the people as to who Jesus is. And part of the reason why they're so divided is because he teaches with such authority. He was never trained in the temple courts. He, they, don't, they don't know how he came up, but he teaches with such authority, and it's knocking them off kilter a little bit. Some say, uh, well, this, this means he's demon-possessed. He's, I'm not, I don't know about this guy. We've got to get him out of here. We've got to kill him. We've got to extra out. Others say, now hang on, this guy speaks as if he comes from the living God. So there's great division And Jesus even says, my authority comes from the one who sent me, and the one who sent me is my father. And that's a divine statement. So the division is is understandable. There's also great suspicion amongst the Jewish leaders. The people are divided, and the leaders are suspicious. The leaders are suspicious because Jesus is cutting into their people power. The the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the the ruling religious leaders, they, they had a nice system put in place to keep control over the Jewish people. Yes, there was the law of Moses. Yes, and they were supposed to be the caretakers, the shepherds, the teachers of that law to the people. Instead, what we have is they've set up over centuries a nice little system that puts laws and traditions and more laws around the original law of God, and it's textbook legalism at its best. Because holiness is always one step out of reach. It's like, it's, it's watching my, my two-year-old try to pick up something sometimes. She kicks it as she's, it's just one step out of reach. Or like watching me try to pick something up sometimes too. And they're suspicious of Jesus, not only because he's turning the people towards him a little bit, but they think he's light to the law. They accuse him of such things. Like, Why do you heal somebody on the Sabbath, you knucklehead? And Jesus retorts, wait a minute. You do the same thing. Because the law says, circumcise a young boy on the eighth day. But if the eighth day is the Sabbath, you still circumcise him. So what's the problem with me healing the whole body on the, eight, on the Sabbath day? Well, they're not a fan of that. So he retorts that he's not light to the law. And finally, in, in, uh, eventually, in chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. That's in the temple courts to the people listening to him and to the religious leaders. And we see that in response to that, the Pharisees are trying to trip up Jesus at every turn. I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but it's important for us to get what Jesus says in John 10. The Pharisees are trying to trip him up at every turn, like they did with the the woman caught in adultery in John 8. So that's the environment and the flavor that's surrounding the ministry of Jesus right now. It's tense. It's tense. And just when you think it can't get any crazier, in John 9, Jesus does it again. When he comes upon a blind man who's been blind from birth, and his disciples ask him, is this this man blind in response to, was he born blind because of his sin? Because you know you can sin a lot before you were born. Or or is he blind because of his parents' sin? And Jesus says, none of the above. He's blind so that the greatness of the works of God could be shown right now. And he spits on the ground, puts mud on the blind man's eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he's healed. I'll give you one guess what day that was. The Sabbath, of course, because you can't write this stuff. Actually, John did. But um, you've you got to read John 9. For the purposes of our series uh, right now, we're not spending 
sermon time there, but you've got to read John 9 because the power of the testimony of this blind man and just the simplicity of him going in front of the religious leaders because they, they investigate it. They bring him in and they say, hang on, is this really the guy who was blind? You know, the guy who's always blind sitting there. Is this really him? Yes, it's him. And, and they say, tell us what happened. And he, it, essentially, you'll read it in John 9. He says, I was blind. I met Jesus. He healed me. And now I see. I wish it was more complicated. And then he proceeds to question them for not believing him. He's like, what do I have to do? And they kick him out. They kick him out of the synagogue. Because they're so just upset. And they, again, focus on what? You did this on the Sabbath. Because he's light to the law, right? So the Pharisees rip the healed man to shreds. He's not the blind man anymore. He's the healed man. He runs into Jesus after he's been kicked out of the synagogue. And at the end of John 9, Jesus says to him, do you have faith in the Son of Man? Do you, do you believe in, in, in the Messiah? And the blind man says, well, I would if I knew him. And Jesus says, you're talking to him. And the blind man says, Lord, or the healed man says, I, I do believe. And he fell to the ground and worshiped him. I promise I'm not preaching out of John 9. And at the end of John 9, the last three verses, I'll put, we'll put them up there for you. You don't have to turn there. Jesus said to the people who were surrounding him, after the, blind, the healed man worshipped him. He says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. It's tense. It's not playful banter happening right now. It is the very fabric of a culture, a very fabric of knowing the God who gave a law that is everything rests for this people upon. It's not playtime. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody, maybe your spouse, a family member, a friend, and you, you're, there's something going on, but you're not getting there yet. You're talking about peripheral things. And the peripheral things that are actually little are kind of big because you're actually talking about something else. And there comes this point in the argument where you finally get there. And it's like, oh, we're talking about what we're talking about now. I don't have any experience with that. <laughs> but this is that moment. For Jesus and the Pharisees. We've been flirting with this through John 6, 7, 8, and 9. And now we're at the moment where it is on the table and this is what it is. There is a battle brewing for the shepherding of God's people. There is a battle brewing for the shepherding of God's people. And what Jesus is about to do is he is going to draw a distinction between the Pharisees and the way they go about the shepherding of God's people, kicking a healed man out of the synagogues, he was healed on the Sabbath, keeping holiness out of reach by laws upon laws upon laws, resulting in condemnation all the time, between that and the heart of the Father. And in John 10, the first 21 verses, Jesus is going to reveal that that heart of the Father is that our God is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And there's a battle for the shepherding of God's people. So we got some of the context. Now let's go to the text. I'm so proud of myself for coming up with that line. Not to be, we'll leave it there. Let's, let's read the first, the first five verses of, of, of John 10 together. 
This is Jesus speaking. Right after he says to them, remember, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now you think you can see you're actually blind, you're guilty. He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought them out all on his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Again, let's just catch the simplicity of what Jesus is doing here. It is a simple metaphor that he's beginning. Sheep, shepherd. And it's simple because it, was, it would have been simple to the people of the day. Sheep farming, shepherding, was a, was a huge staple of the ancient Middle Eastern economy. In many places there, it still is today. It was, it, was a, it was a natural economic metaphor for Jesus to be drawing. And it was a simple process for caring for sheep in a sheep pen. A fold or a pen was a large walled-in area. The wall didn't have to be too high to keep sheep in, obviously. But it was walled in and it had one opening. And shepherds, at the end of the day, multiple shepherds, would bring their flocks. They would put them all together, multiple flocks, into the sheep pen. And then, because they were turning in for the night, and they would hire a watchman to guard the gate. There was one opening. So the watchman stands guard at the gate. The shepherds rest for the night. And then in the morning, remember there's multiple flocks, each shepherd would come and stand at the gate, and he would call out for his flock. And his flock knew his voice. And only his sheep would come to him, no matter the amount of, of sheep in the, in the pen of, of different flocks. And the only person that the gatekeeper would allow to come to the front of the gate was the shepherd. And after that, his sheep come out, they go out to pasture, they stay by their shepherd, he leads them out, he follow, they follow him, and they go about their day, lather, rinse, repeat, bah, and after that, you're good. <laughs> they follow the shepherd to, out to their fields for, for pasture. It's a simple economic metaphor. But it's important for us to get the culture, because I don't know about you, but I've never herded sheep. Certainly never in a sheep pen. So what Jesus is doing is he's simply describing, he's giving a state of the shepherding of God's people speech, if you will, like a state of the union, where he gets up, he's laying out how things are, and he's, he's going to begin to lay out an agenda and a, vis- a vision, if you will, of how things should be. And how things are, Jesus contends, is that the Pharisees are not shepherding God's people well. It's been his contention throughout the book of John up to this point. They try to force the following of rules to attain holiness. They maintain control by keeping holiness just out of reach, as we've said, with laws upon laws. They lead the people by keeping them in the dark. We have the control. We set the laws and traditions. It's inaccessible to you, and therefore holiness is inaccessible to you, and you're continually in condemnation. It's the textbook religion legalism approach. I do... I do and do and do and do to attain. And that's the system. That's the, that's the shepherding system that they had. Now, throughout the Old Testament scripture, if you ever want a fascinating study, take some time and look through the Old Testament prophets about what God has to say about people who shepherd his people falsely. It is not something that sits well with God. He does not have patience for false shepherds. People with power leading other people astray. 
uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, they, they speak plainly about it. So do many of the other prophets. And in verse, the verse, uh, first five verses, Jesus lays out the difference between shepherding falsely, entering like a thief and a robber, and shepherding authentically, standing at the gate and calling for the sheep. And you can see that the sheep understand the difference because of their reaction. They respond to their shepherd's voice. But from a stranger's voice, they don't respond. In fact, they recoil. They're going the other direction. They're following a shepherd, but they're running from a stranger. It's all due to whether or not they recognize them. There is, I I think, this is just me. This is the commentary of James. But I think after these first first five verses, I think there's a finality to this. I think Jesus said that, and he expected them to get it. Like, Like, you know, this is shepherding well, and this is shepherding badly. But what does verse 6 say? Verse 6 says, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus is going to go deeper, and he's going to expound further. And I believe that Jesus begins to describe himself in relationship to God's people. Jesus describes himself in relationship to God's people. Let's pick it up at verse 7. We'll go to verse 10. Therefore, remember, the Pharisees don't understand this simple economic metaphor. And therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And all who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The entry point of relationship is the gate. Jesus is saying, I'm the gate. I'm the, I'm the entry point. For before, I, know, I know the popular reading of this, and, and, and the correct reading is, is that we're talking about Jesus as the good shepherd. We are. We're also talking about Jesus as the gate. He's the entry point of relationship to the Father. Jesus' ministry in its entirety up to this point has been all about his relationship to the Father. I only do what my Father commands me. I do nothing else. I do everything in response to my Father. He's given me any authority that I have. It's his automatic automatic response. I do what I'm commanded. I've come to reveal the Father. And the only access to the Father is through me. You can see why there's tension and great division. There is today. Any other way to the Father is over the wall of the sheep pen. It's trying to not go through the gate. And only thieves and robbers enter that way. And any, anyone, anything before or after Jesus that, it, that attempts to be the access point of knowing God results in destruction. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But any sheep making its way through the gate has the fullness of all it needs goes in, comes out, finds pasture. It's safe. It's secure. It lives a saved existence. Again, there's a, there's a finality of this, of this comparison that Jesus is making. Any other attempt to the Father outside the gate, which is Jesus, destroys life. Knowing the Father through Jesus, the gate brings fullness of life. There's a finality to that. But Jesus goes even further. Let's take a look at the next uh, couple of verses. Let's pick it up in, in John 11. You guys with me? I'm not going too fast. We're okay? Happiness? There is a simplicity to what Jesus is saying when we understand everything that's going around 
with it. Does that make sense? Uh, Let's pick it up in, in verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, remember the watchman we were talking about? The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He highlights ownership of the sheep and he highlights sacrifice for the sheep. And the two are connected. The sheep belong to Jesus because he lays his life down for them. It's a, it's, it's a, a purchasing transaction. And it's the unbreakable relationship of shepherd to sheep. Unlike the hired hand, who's the watchman, who doesn't own the sheep, has no skin in the game, has never had to sacrifice for them, uh, leaves at the first sign of danger, the flock is scattered, they're left vulnerable. Why? Because he doesn't own the sheep. His ultimate care is not for the sheep. It's for himself. It just makes sense. It's the, the hired hand and the shepherd ultimately have different concerns. The sheep and himself. That's not mean. It's just true. It's the sacrifice of the good shepherd that affords him the belonging of the sheep. Does that make sense? It's the sacrifice of the good shepherd that affords him the belonging of the sheep. Remember, Jesus is giving the state of shepherding. (laughs) He's saying this is how things are. It's how they need to be. So if you don't get it, Pharisees, let me explain to you again about shepherding. (laughs) Let's put this simple here for you. Let's keep going In, in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is not only the good shepherd. But he's the good shepherd. See what I did there? See how one is italicized and one and the other is italicized. He's the good shepherd and he's the good Shepherd. Again, he highlights sacrifice for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. This is, this is a transaction of belonging. But he also highlights relationship. Not just ownership, but relationship to the sheep. Relationship comes from knowing. I know my sheep. My sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. That kind of knowing results in intimacy. The kind of intimacy upon which relationship is built And intimacy comes from knowing the closeness of one's presence and one's voice. And that is the exact relationship that Jesus has been talking about between this kind of shepherd and his sheep. They know his voice. And all that security, that fullness of life, that coming in and going out and finding pasture, and come that they may have life and have it to the full, it doesn't come from the security of the sheep pen. It comes from the proximity to the shepherd. Jesus is irrevocably tying relationship to him to not only knowing the Father, but having the fullness of life. He is the gate and he is the shepherd. And he is making it plain 
for his listeners. Then he does a really beautiful but crucial aside. You know what an aside is? It's like when you're, like when you're watching Shakespeare, like we all do, and uh, something's going on, and one of the characters comes over, and he says something that only he and you, or she and you, can hear. That's an aside. And Jesus, Jesus he, he puts this little parenthetical verse in there, verse 16. Let's read it again together. It's beautiful. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and know me as the Father knows me, as I know the Father. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This is particularly good news for the vast majority of us in this room. Because Jesus is speaking of the Gentiles. He's speaking of the Gentiles. He's in the temple courts in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees who are are of the... This is not a put-down of anything Jewish. This is an inclusion of other sheep from another pen. And Jesus says, I'm coming after them and they're going to know my voice too. I'm telling you what, I'm jumping out of my skin that, that that's how God chose to go about this. And yes, there's, a, there's an entire study of the theology of that that we can do throughout the New Testament. And it's rich and it's wonderful, but it's just, it's something that Jesus in that moment, in that moment where he is laying down, talking about what they're actually talking about, and he's, he's Sticking it to the Pharisees about shepherding, where I just love that he thinks to say, oh, and by the way, oh, by the way, (laughs) people who you don't even, I mean, continents you don't even fathom right now, I got sheep there too. And there's going to be one flock, and there's going to be one shepherd. And in Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul expounds upon that, about Christ as the head of his church, building his church. And it's across every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every millennium, every, just a a cross section of everything. I'm the one shepherd. That's my flock. I love that he includes that in there. And how will that one flock, whether Gentile, whether Jew, how will that one flock under one shepherd be drawn? Well, let's take a look at verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. Here we go with that again. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. It's like this culminating moment where Jesus has given the state of shepherding. He's implicitly indicted the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for the way they've shepherded. He's laid out what it looks like to shepherd faithfully and be the gate to know the Father. And then in this moment, he also says, and by the way, the good shepherd is also the Lamb of God. The good shepherd is also the lamb of God. It's a reminder of everything that Jesus has declared to this point. The love of my relationship to the Father is activated. It's activated in my obedience to him to lay down my life and take it up again. And I have authority to lay it down. I got authority to take it back up. I have that authority because I've been commanded by the Father. I'm the gate 
to salvation. I am the good shepherd, and I am the lamb of God. We're talking about what we're talking about now. We're talking about what we're talking about. This is the truth and power of what Jesus is saying coming in the simplicity of his response to what has been going on. So we're at this big, tense, dramatic moment, and the natural question to ask is, how does all this land? <laughs> how does all this go over? <laughs> well, let's read the last, uh, the last three verses of our time today, 19, 20, and 21, where it says, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. There's still great division. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? I'm out of here. But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember what's going on? There's still great division. And I want to say this to us very simply about their reaction. It is very easy for us to, in 2015, scoff at the reaction of some of the people, to just beat our head against the wall at the religious leaders of the day and exercise our perfect hindsight, and that's fine. That's fine. There's really nothing inherently wrong with that. But John culminates this section of his account with the same searing, eternal question that was the question for the Pharisees, it was the question for the healed blind man. It was the question for the, the hearers of Jesus in the temple courts, the woman caught in adultery, anyone coming into contact with Jesus. We are left with the same question, and it's the question for you and me today on February 22nd, 2015, and that is when it is all said and done, what do we make of Jesus? What do we make of Jesus? I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the lamb of God. It's the question Jesus asked the blind man right before he launched into this. Do you have faith in the son of man? And the, blind, the healed man says, I do. And he worships. What do we make of Jesus? Is he Lord and Savior? Is he good shepherd, the gateway to knowledge of the Father? Or is he not that. It's zero sum. I, I think we've had a, we've had a, uh, Steve set us off on a bold track today of, of, of encouraging boldness and, and, and courage to step out and contend for what the Lord has going on. And I just want to sort of piggyback on that and say, if, if there's someone right now who does not know Jesus as good shepherd, as Lord and Savior, I just want to say, will you have courage to just raise your hand? Because I would love to pray with you right now for that to be the case. Not to be stark or, or, or tough, but right now I just want to, want to make that opportunity available. You know, he is the good shepherd. He is the gateway to knowing the Father. That's what he's contended in this moment of talking about what we're talking about. And Debs, I want to invite you and the, and the team to come back up because I want us as a family to, of those of us who do know him, as the good shepherd, as the gate, as the one with whom when we have our proximity, we have life to the full. I want us, we're going to celebrate that as a family in communion.
together as Debs and the band play. And I, I just want to encourage you. I know that if you know the Lord as your Savior, we celebrate communion to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed for us. But today, I'd like to, I'd like to put underneath that, that question that Jesus asked to the blind man. And it's the question that John has, that has put to us at the end of this passage as well. And that is, what do you make of Jesus? And as we celebrate it today, as we take the bread and we take the cup, we can say unto the Lord, I make of you that you are the Son of God. I make of you that you are the good shepherd. You are Lord and Savior. That's what I make of you. And we can have the same response as the healed man did at the end of John 9. He fell to the ground and worshiped. Yeah. Because more than just physical blindness fell away that day. So can we celebrate that together?